Well, welcome everybody and uh, welcome everybody watching at home and at Montrose. Thanks for joining us as well. We have, uh, we have spent the summer uh, talking out of the book of Romans and encourage you, if you've never read the book of Romans, uh, go in there and read that thing cover to cover. Just some great, great things. And what happens in the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> who wrote a bunch of the New Testament, what he does is he takes Jesus' teachings and kind of takes Jesus' life and he kind of helps to weave that into what we would call the life of the church and then like our everyday lives as followers of Jesus. So he kind of explains that, expounds upon it, and just helps us to kind of more fully get our head around Jesus' heart and his mind. And so we've just been looking at that. And uh, the last chunk of that, we've called this this series Superficial, where we've been looking specifically at loving Christ and then loving each other. So it's Jesus who says, I have a new commandment for you. It's to love one another just as you have been loved. And then it's Jesus who says, and later on, he says, hey, uh, here's the deal. The, the thing that I want is I want you to love God or love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And the Apostle Paul kind of takes those two directives. That's like the prime directive. That's the deal, that we love God, we love people. And he kind of pushes that through, and he helps us to understand that and like boil that, that down into that kind of being the driving force of our, of our life. So we're to love each other as Christ has loved us. Now, what we did, just to make sure that there's clarity to that, is we put a definition to that because we use the word love loosely. It's not wrong. It's just the way that we talk to each other, right? So we, we love ice cream. We love the Ohio State Buckeyes, if you're a Christ follower. Like, we love the Browns. We like, <clears throat> like, so we, just, we use that term a lot, which is no big deal, but we wanted to make sure that when we're looking at the scripture, that we're thinking about love the way that Jesus thinks about love. So I gave us this definition. The love that Jesus is talking about is what we call a Christ-like love. So I'm going to love you like Jesus loves me. So when Jesus says, love each other just as I have loved you, I'm like, well, how did Jesus love me then? And what does that look like and how does that play out? He's not using that term kind of loosely. He's using it in kind of a narrow way. So a Christ-like love, I'm going to love like Christ-like loves, right? Christ-like love is this. Christ-like love is desiring what is the ultimate best for someone in Christ regardless of the cost to yourself. So when Jesus is like, I want the ultimate best for you, he doesn't mean like, find and live your own truth. He doesn't mean live your best life now. He doesn't mean like all your dreams come true. He would look and say the ultimate best for you is that you know you know me, you know yourself that you're a sinner in need of a savior and you know that I'm that savior. And then you bring your life under my definition and direction so you walk with me, you learn from me, you allow me to shape and change and transform your mind. So you becoming like me is the ultimate best for you. I want that for you regardless of the cost to myself. So that cost Jesus ultimately the cross. It cost him stepping out of heaven, landing on the planet, living in this environment that, that is in a, in a human condition. So he's God, he 
creator, he's worthy of majesty, shows up a baby, lives on the dirt, right? Major, major humility. And then ultimately, he goes to the cross. He's falsely accused. He's falsely sentenced. He's unjustly crucified. And so Jesus is like, that's how I love you. In order for you to know that you're a sinner, know that I'm your savior, then he rose again in three days. I had to go through all that. I want that because that's the ultimate best for you, but it costs me a lot. And my followers mimic that. They love each other as I have loved them. And then we, we said this, we said that Christ-like love is rooted in the idea of living grace and truth out relationally. So Jesus, what Jesus does, the Bible says he's full of grace and he's full of truth. So grace is mercy, is compassion, is acceptance, truth, his righteousness, his holiness, his truth. He's full, he doesn't sometimes give us grace and sometimes give us truth. He's equally both those things all the time. And so he says, I want you to love each other in grace and truth. And there's times that I need to bring those things to bear in my life with you. And so we said that's important because I can't love you by giving you truth but withholding grace. That's not love. And I can't love you by giving you grace but withholding truth. That's not love. That's not what Jesus means. I give you all of that all the time through me the way that Christ gave that to me, just as he loved me. So when we look at what the Apostle Paul says then, he's like, hey, these commandments are summed up in, he gave a list of things. He said, they're summed up in this one. This is the gig. Love your neighbor as yourself. But there's a definition to love. Christ-like love, grace and truth. Regardless of the cost of me, I want the ultimate best for you, which is you knowing, loving, and following Jesus. So love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not wrong, do wrong to others, does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. So if you were looking and saying, what, what does God want from me? How, can, how, sh how should I be a Christian? How do I follow Jesus? The Apostle Paul is like, you love your neighbor as yourself. Like, love Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christ-like. Christ-like love. Grace and truth. And when you do that, it covers everything, right? Because when we act in love toward one another and we act in love toward Christ, all the requirements of the law are that. It's all summed up, love your neighbor as yourself, okay? So this is an important thing because Paul kind of goes and he's like, that commandment, when Jesus is like, I give you a new commandment, love, love each other just as I loved you, he's like, that's this. That's what he's talking about. And it's what Paul's trying to help us to understand. And this is foundational to everything in our relationship with Christ. In fact, it's Jesus who said, he said, all the law and all the prophets hang on that. Love God, love your neighbor. Like you can't, the rest of the Bible doesn't even work unless you read it through, love me with your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is, re is emphasizing that and teaching it to us, okay? Now, this is hyper-important for where Paul goes next, okay? So he's like, I want you to get this down, Christ-like love, Christ-like love, Christ-like love fulfills the law, love your neighbor as yourself, doesn't do wrong to others, this Christ-like love fulfills the requirement of the law, okay, that's verse 10. Now, the very next verse, 
he says this. In verse 11, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, this is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So Paul is talking about Jesus' promise to return. So Jesus promised he would raise again from the dead. Jesus promised that he would return again after he went back to heaven. So the Apostle Paul is looking at Christ's followers, and he's like, hey, this this requirement of the law, this one, this new commandment to love each other as I have loved you is all the more urgent because the circumstances that we're living in are becoming more difficult and the days are becoming shorter. So I would kind of say it this way. When life is hard and the world is changing, the response of the Christ follower is to love each other and the, and the world around us. The harder life is and the more the world changes, the more urgent that commandment from Jesus is. It's more important that we love our neighbor as herself and more important that we love Christ with heart, soul, mind, strength as life gets hard and as the world around us changes. And that is a core, fundamental, key commandment, directive, reminder to every aspect of the Christian life. And if you're a Jesus follower, this is the prime directive, right? That you would love Christ, your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the harder life gets and the more the world changes, the more urgently that commandment is needed. Now, so think about this. Life gets hard, right? So life gets hard. Relationships break down. When, when she lost her mind and when he's off the rails and we're trying to make a marriage and a family happen, what do I do? That would be a normal question. What do I do? Where do I start? Is it therapy? Is it a book? Is it, is it something? I'm Googling something on the internet. Is it TikTok? Where all the wisdom of the world is found. Like, what, what do I do? If you ask that to the Apostle Paul and you looked at him and said, it's just so hard, he would say, it's all the more urgent that you love them in a Christ-like love. When the, when the kids are malfunctioning and they're walking away and they're out of control, what do I do? The Apostle Paul would look at you and say, at those moments, it's all the more urgent that you love with a Christ-like love, grace and truth delivered relationally. When the roommate is melting down, it's all the more urgent during that time. When the circumstances of life are difficult, when the job is lost and life has changed and I'm struggling to have victory in this area, what do I do? Paul would be like, the, the more difficult the circumstances, it's all the more urgent that you love your neighbor as yourself and you love Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's the time that that really shows up. When my anxiety is overwhelming me and my stress is overwhelming me and the pressure is overwhelming me, what, do I run away, do I escape? 
Do I, do I blank my mind? Like, what do I do? Do I go within myself to find myself? The Apostle Paul would be like, no. It's at times like that it's all the more urgent that you do that. When the world is changing, when, when you look at the world and you're like, what is going on? Like, what is going on? What they're saying, it's not even logical. It's not even possible. What do I do with those people? When people are vehemently opposed to what you vehemently believe, what do I do with that enemy? Well, the Apostle Paul would say, well, like, remember, love your enemies as yourself. It's all the more urgent that you love your neighbor as yourself. No matter the situation, no matter the cultural complication or the personal implication, loving your neighbor as yourself is always the first and the best response. And it's what, it's what drives us in all things if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, right? It's core, it's foundational, it's the gig, it's the thing. And it's what we give ourselves to because it's what Christ gave himself to for us. A foreign culture that is out of step with God, difficult circumstances coming to us who are enemies of God in our heart. And he loved us with a Christ-like love. Once the ultimate best for us, delivered in grace and truth, regardless of the cost to him. Okay, now, that's a tall order. That's a tall order. And that's, a, that's an order that it kind of goes against our instincts. So it's something that God is going to have to transform us in. He's going to have to change the way that we think about it. Right? So I want to talk about that a little bit because this is, it's interesting where Paul goes with this. Right? So he's writing this letter to this, this church in Rome and he's trying to help them understand this stuff. And he talks about a few things that I think are super, super relevant for us today when we think about doing this, right? We think about fulfilling the requirements of the law by loving our neighbor as ourselves. So I think there's a couple of like fundamental things that I have to decide in order to do this the way that, that, that Jesus has called me to do it, okay? So here's the first one. If I'm gonna do this, and I'm going to pursue this as number one, because when life's hard and the world's changing, this is the thing. What do I have to do? Here's the first thing that Paul kind of lays out for us. I said it this way. The first thing we have to do is choose to build our identity in Christ alone or in Jesus alone. So we have to choose to build our identity in Jesus alone. Now, this is the way that, that the scripture says it. When Paul is speaking here. He says this. He says, so because that's the deal, this is the next verse, so remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we, we don't belong to the night, we, we love as we love, we're in Christ, because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or sexual promiscuity or immoral living or in quarreling or jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil, 
your evil desires. So Apostle Paul comes in and he says, listen, if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, the first thing you have to do is you have to strip the things away and out of your life that cause you not to love a neighbor but use a neighbor, cause you not to love a neighbor but resent a neighbor. And you have to strip those things out of your life because if those things are the defining features of your life, Christ will not be. And you will not be known for your love for the people that God has placed into your life. And he uses this word picture of dirty clothes. He's like, you take off those dirty clothes and you clothe yourself in the presence of the Lord. So this is the idea that, that he's, he's working on here. What he's saying is this. He's saying, I'm changing my identity. I'm no longer identified by things in my life. If I walk into the room and I'm the party animal and that's what I'm known for, I am not known for my love for my neighbor. If I walk into the room and I'm, I'm the guy that just, you know, it's football season, so we're gonna tailgate and we're gonna get, you know, trashed. I'm the guy known for my drunkenness. I am not known first primarily by my love for my neighbor and my love for Jesus Christ. If I'm known as the player, sexual promiscuity, immoral living, I'm known as the guy that will argue with you. You wanna talk politics? We'll talk politics, right? Here's my points. I'm known for that guy. I'm known for jealousy. If anything about my life is what is presented first in my life. When I walk into the room, what I bring into the room is jealousy. What I bring into the room is sexual immorality. What I bring into the room is an argument. If that is what I'm clothed in, the Apostle Paul is looking and saying, that is not to be the Christ follower's identity. Because if that, do you know how dark the days are? Do you, do you know how difficult life is? Don't show up with that identity. Show up, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be the person that when you walk in to the difficult room because life is hard, you walk in with the love and the grace and truth of Jesus. You bring that into the room. When you talk about how the world's changing and things are difficult and people are moving away from it, when you walk into that conversation, you walk in with the grace and the truth of Jesus. You're the presence of Christ in that situation. And allow that, decide that that is gonna be your primary identity. Decide that you're gonna set aside your opinions, set aside your desires, set aside your sexual impulses, set aside your jealousy, set aside your arguments, and I'm gonna do whatever I can to bring the presence of Christ into this place wherever I am in this place. And when you do that, it's life-changing for you and the people around you. One of my heroes that I talk about a lot is uh, Pastor Bob Combs. So Pastor Bob is uh, the person who I, I served under before I came up here. was a senior pastor of Grace before I was. So he's like a hero, a mentor of mine. And I've served with Pastor Bob for thir over 30 years now. So I know him pretty well. And over those 30 years, I've watched him in all kinds of situations 
I've watched people walk into him and just lay him out. You're a this, you're a that. Some of the ugliest stuff that I've ever seen. And I've also watched him like get uh, an award, like different, many awards actually. His wall's full of them. You're the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of people. So I'm watching my spiritual Yoda like go through all these different things of life. And what fascinates me and helps me and challenges me and is a model to me about Pastor Bob is he never changes regardless of the circumstances. He'll get lambasted by somebody and I'll watch them just rip him up one side and down the other. And I, I'm a fighter. Like, I'll turn, you hit, you punch me, I will turn around and I will punch you back in the face harder and call Heidi in. I mean, that's what's going to happen, right? Like, that's, that's my instinct. I watched Bob over the years, like, absorb that. And I'm like, aren't you going to fight? And he will look at me and say, Jeff, you don't understand. They're just hurting. Hurting people hurt people. Don't look at them, look through them. What, what are you doing? He's loving them in grace and truth. He's loving them the way that Jesus loves him. I've seen him confront, I've, we've been in horrible situations where we've had to confront horrible things. I'm sitting there right, and I've seen him be strong and, and matter of fact and blunt and no, and you're lying, and he, why? He's loving them. He's not going off. He's not venting his frustration. He's loving them. I've walked in with him with the most horrible circumstances life can throw at you. A child has been lost. Someone has taken their life. Horrible, horrible situations. And Pastor Bob walks into that room. And when he walks into that room... People who know him will turn to him. They'll start to weep because his presence is in the room. And it's not because his arrogance is in the room or his answer to every question is in the room. It's because a guy walked in the room and you know right then and there he loves you. And even when he gets his big award, he'll get that and he'll say, you know, it's my team. It's my wife, Julie. It, it, I would never be here without this person or that person. All his identity is in Christ alone. And when he walks in, he walks in clothed in that. And when I look at that, I'm like, that's, that's what Paul's talking about. And that's what I want to decide it's what I want to choose, right? That I'm known for my love of Christ, of you, of my neighbor, even of my enemy. The struggle with sin is not a struggle of behavior. It's a struggle of identity. Because when I'm jealous, it's not my jealousy. It's that I'm, I desire something other than Christ. When I'm sexually immoral and, and I'm promiscuous, it, it's not because I, I just have to act on my impulses, it's because I'm desiring to be fulfilled by something other than Christ. And on down the line and on down the line, I'm, I'm acting outside of the character and the transformation that Jesus brought to me and it shows up in my behavior. And the Apostle Paul just looks and says, hey, anything in your life 
that you can get out of the way of people knowing the heart and mind of Jesus, throw that out like dirty clothes and put on the presence of Christ. Now, the next thing he says is fascinating. So I'm gonna choose to have my identity in Christ. These are, this is my words now. The second thing I'm gonna, I'm gonna do is this. I'm gonna choose to be defined by the gospel alone. I'm gonna choose to be defined by the gospel alone. So let me show you what Paul says that we'll talk about. So Paul says, this is the next passage. I choose to be defined by the gospel alone. He, he goes here with it. He says this, he says, accept other believers whose faith, who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Isn't that fascinating? Then drop down to verse 19. He says, so then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. So he's gonna talk directly to Christ followers. So if you're not a Christ follower yet, you're 100% off the hook on this one. Right? If you're a Christ follower, you're one million percent on the hook for this one, right? So it's just it's fascinating where he goes here. He writes to these Christ followers, so except other believers, so he's talking just to Christ followers. He says, except those who are weak in the faith, don't argue with them about what they think was right or wrong. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. So the Apostle Paul is doing something interesting. So he's the, Romans is a letter to a local church in Rome. People who live in Rome are Romans, right? So he's writing a letter to a local church, the early church. And this is what's happening in the early church. Basically, basically, there's two groups of people in the early church. One group of people are people who grew up Jewish, found the gospel, the good news of Jesus, I'm a savior, you're a sinner, I came to save you, and I wanna invite you into this life to walk with me. They view Jesus as their savior and their Messiah who fulfills all these Jewish prophecies, which is true. The other group of people are these Gentiles. These Gentiles basically have no religious background, especially in anything to do with what we would call the Bible. So they look at Jesus, and Jesus' gospel, as good news is, hey, I'm a savior, you're a sinner, and I'm here to save you. And when they hear that, they don't think, oh, prophecy fulfilled. They think, you're a savior, yeah. You're, I'm, a, I'm a sinner? Yeah. What? Yeah. And then explain that. Oh, and you'll forgive me? Yeah. Whoa, that's really, really good news. Like, I didn't know any of that. But now I do, I'm excited about it. So you have these two groups of people. The way that we would say it today is you have people who grew up in church and people who didn't grow up in church, right? People who grew up in church and people who didn't grow up in church, they both respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and then they mesh together in a spiritual family that the Bible calls the church. So he's writing to that group of people and there's something going on with that group of people they're struggling with. What's happening is this. There are those whose faith is weak and, and they're arguing with each other about what they think is right or what they think is wrong and it's causing division within the church. So what happens is this, is the people who grew up in church, they found the hope and the salvation of Jesus but they brought all their church stuff with them. And they're like, yeah, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah and he forgave us of our sins, but you can't eat this kind of food. 
and you got to go to church on these days, and by the way, you're not supposed to do anything, and they bring all of their church background, or what the Bible calls the law with them, and they're like, you got to be a Christ follower and a Jewish person in order to actually honor God. The Gentiles are like, I'm pretty sure you just got to be a Jesus person. I'm pretty sure you're, you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. You don't earn it. And the, the church people are like, yeah, kind of, except you have to do this and do this, do this and the other thing. And they're arguing about who's right and who's wrong. And Paul says, some of their faith is weak and you who are stronger, you need to accept those whose faith is weak. Now here's what's fascinating about this. The people who have the weak faith are the people who grew up in church, not the people who heard the gospel responded to it. Because these people are like, hey, you just gotta know and love Jesus. And they're like, well, yeah, but and also. And so he's looking at these ropes and he says, listen, when you've got somebody who has added to the gospel and they're trying to sort out what it really means to follow Jesus, and they can't hardly believe that salvation is by grace alone. And they, they, it can't be as simple that loving your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of all the requirements of the law. Accept them, don't argue with them, because the harmony of the church is so important, right? So the weak in faith, the weak in faith focus on their personal distinctives. I think this, I think that, I think the other thing. I th the strong in faith focus on harmony and mission. It's okay that you think that, I think about something else, but look at all these people who need to know about Jesus. Well, you've got a problem, you can't eat this, you can't drink that, you can't, yeah, I, I got you, you know, if you don't wanna do that, you shouldn't do that. But look at all these people who need to know about Jesus. So the weak in faith focus on personal distinctives. The strong in faith focus on harmony and mission. The weak believe that behavioral changes are their response to God. I quit smoking, drinking, chewing, dating girls who do, and this weekend, cheering for Indiana. Like, that's what I quit doing. The strong focus on loving people with grace and truth and know that that fulfills the requirement of the law. I, I, I'm like, I'm just gonna go love these people because I don't know what else to do. I'm gonna give my life to that. The weak in faith resent and fear the lost. The strong in faith befriend and pursue the lost. And Paul says, you accept each other, you don't argue about that, and you focus on harmony. The Bible is clear that Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people can disagree without disuniting. The Bible is incredibly clear about that, but they should aim for harmony. There are famous people in the Bible, the guy who wrote this letter and his friend Barnabas disagreed, but did not disunite. John Mark disagreed. Peter and Paul disagree, but did not disunite. That happens all the time. You can have convictions about your behavior, your life, and even parts of theology and doctrine that I don't agree with, 
but it doesn't mean that we disunite within the church. And Paul is correcting that, and he's saying, you guys have to aim for harmony. Why? Because the unity of the church is the testimony of the church. Loving my neighbor and you're my neighbor. So I, I love my neighbor at work, but I don't speak to the person I go to church with. I love my friend who's lost, but I won't, I'm so mad about a political conversation, I won't talk to somebody that I spent 15 years in church with. The unity of the church is the testimony of the church. It's Jesus who said, they, the world, will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. It fulfills all the rules. It's, it's, it's bigger than the disagreements that we're gonna have for with, with each other. And I, heard, I had somebody say to me this week, they said, yeah, the unity of the church is under attack right now. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, the unity of the church has always been under attack. This is the first church. This is nothing new. The unity and the harmony of, of the people of God is always under attack. Why? Why? Because if Satan can cause us to be known by our division instead of our love, he can discount, pervert, and twist who Christ is. And in a hurting world, when life is hard, and in a changing world that is deeply confused, and the world is changing, if there is no repository of love, it's hard because our relationships are broken down, I'm lost in circumstances. It's hard because this group hates that group. If there is no group anywhere that is known by their love, I've been thrown out of this group, I've been rejected by these people, who should I look to? The last group that I would ever think about as unified and working together is the people in the church building. And if Satan can divide the church, he can discount the savior of the church who tells his people, his church, to love each other. And so when people look at his people and they're like, isn't that the one thing you guys are supposed to do? And Paul looks at this and he's like, guys, the days are short. We're children of the day. We live in the day. We don't live in the dark. The day, it's more urgent now than ever that we love each other as Christ has loved us. You are my neighbor. In fact, you're my family, spiritually speaking. And in that context, he looks at the Roman church and he's like, guys, you gotta work on this one. You gotta work on this one. Sometimes we just accept. Sometimes we help. Sometimes we have conversations, but we don't go to war and we don't separate from each other, whether it is theology, whether it is politics, whether it is COVID-like stuff. Not the people of God. We aim for harmony because in our harmony is a huge part of our testimony.
of who Christ is, how he loves us, and how he wants to love the people around us. All of this kind of boils down to, to this last thing. And the last thing, is, it's, it's what we've been talking about here for weeks and even months, and it's this idea that I have to allow myself to be transformed by Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, or you want to be, the gig is this. The gig is I die to myself, and I'm made alive, or I'm reborn in Christ. The gig is you don't see Jeff, you see Jesus. And I strip away who I am and what I'm like, and, and so that you, when I take off those clothes, I show up in the presence of Christ is what you experience in my love for you, my love for the lost, and my love even for my enemy. And this is kind of the foundation of all that Paul's been talking about. Back to Romans chapter 12. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. You argue with me, I argue with you. Paul's like, don't. You, you hate me, I hate you. Don't. You cancel me, I cancel you. He's like, stop. This, this is not what Christ does. Don't copy that. Be different. Be transformed. Where's that going to start? It, it starts in my salvation and it moves like to my brain. I'm going to think about things differently. God changes my mind. And he looks and he says, the, the, the outplay of that is, is this. Don't just pretend to love others. Don't cheapen or misdefine that word. But really love them. Christ-like. I want the ultimate best for you in Christ, regardless of the cost to me. Really love them. What's that look like? Well, I hold tightly to what's good. I love others with the genuine affection. I take delight in honoring each other, and I hate what is wrong. I, I allow Christ to pull this stuff out of my life and I allow him to clothe me in him so that I'm known for my love. What's God want me to do? Love me with your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole Bible hangs on that. How you fulfill the law? You love your neighbor as yourself. It's the gig. It's the gig. And I allow God to work that transformation in me. And when we do that, when we do that, it is powerful because nobody else does that. And when we do that, when we don't pretend, but we really love each other and our world and our enemy and our neighbor, it causes us to stick out like a sore thumb and it changes, it changes the world around us. I was thinking about this this week, and this week, earlier in the week, was the, uh, was the 60th anniversary of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And so I was kind of reading about that, I was thinking about that. So I, I started thinking about what, what he and his, Andrew Young, and was, what, those, what those people did, what, the, what the, those leaders did. It was fascinating. What they, what they did was they took... A, a godly principle that, that everyone is valued. Before God, everyone is valued and loved. Jesus gave his life for everyone. They took a godly principle and they just locked it in place and they said, this is the way 
that it should function. But as they took that valuable principle, what they did then is they took a godly practice. They took a godly practice. And what they said is, in essence, they said, we're not going to, we're not going to pursue that value through the customs and behavior of the world. Because we're, we're not going to take up arms against people who take up arms against us. We're not going to shout down and scream at and name call people who shout down, scream at, and name call us. We're not going to water hose people who water hose us. What we're going to do is we're going to love and function like Jesus did. When Jesus was treated unjustly, he turned the other cheek. When Jesus was falsely accused and imprisoned, he, he did not, he would not answer Pilate. And then ultimately when Jesus was martyred or gave his life, he was willing. Jesus loved like that. And so we're going to take his life and we're going to try to translate that into our life and that's going to make what, that's going to make his truth a truth that can be not, cannot be denied because we're going to have a moral authority in that process. It's fascinating. And as they did that, as they would not respond, they took a moral high ground, and suddenly, as they took a moral high ground, the people who hated them, the people who persecuted them, the people who were falsely imprisoning them, the pe- and ultimately, the one who took Dr. King's life and others' lives, the whole conversation shifted. They won the argument without arguing it, and the world has changed for the better because of it. It's fascinating. Now, Jesus would look at his followers, and he would be like, that's how that works. Life is hard. People are difficult. Everything's changing. I feel like they're my enemies. And Jesus would be like, yeah, when I was, when I was falsely accused, do you remember what I did? I turn the other cheek. Yeah, but they're so wrong. Yet when the world is out of step with my heart and mind, when it's so unjust, right, when Pilate, I set up and tear down kingdoms, when the person I put in a place of authority arrested me and then had me crucified, what did I do to him? When the Romans grabbed a a cross made out of a tree and I created the, the DNA, so to say, of how a tree even grows, when I had every right and every opportunity and would have been completely in the right, what did you watch me do? Why? Why? Because when Jesus gave his life, you ready? When Jesus gave his life, 
and he had the ability to fight, and he had the ability to argue, and he had the ability. When Jesus gave his life, there was no way to deny his love. The people wanted him to turn it political. When he gave his life, there was no way to deny his love. And because he gave his life, and he took it up again, we see his love. And because we can see his love, we're able to respond to us. Why would he do that that way? Because he wanted the ultimate best for us. Regardless of the cost to himself. When life is difficult and the world is changing and an individual or a people show up like that, it is powerful. It is different. It does not align with the customs and the behaviors of the world. And when we show up like that and we offer the ultimate best for you regardless of the cost to ourselves, what is undeniable is Christ's love flowing through us because it was given to us. And Paul says, the harder it gets and the darker it becomes, do that more. Do that first. Do that 911. It's more urgent then. Because the power, the statement, the illustration of who Christ is, is the clearest at those times. The band's going to come out and they'll, they'll, um, they'll reset the stage and take us into a time of worship. Would, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me as they do all that? And I just, I just encourage you, take a breath. Like just be still, talk to God for a minute, say hi. <laughs> Give him a, a license to challenge your thinking, to soften your heart. Just kind of welcome him into this moment. Ask to hear from him. Jesus in this rare moment of stillness in our lives would you through your Holy Spirit just begin to take your word and press it into the places that we need to change the places we need to be encouraged God some of us are hard hearted some of us are weary Some of us are stubborn about loving the neighbor and the enemy. And some of us have been so dedicated for so long, we're exhausted. And everything in between, if you would just meet us in our individual places, God.
God, whether it's in this room or it's at the campsite, wherever we are right now, As we've been talking about this, my guess would be that God has brought an individual or a set of relationships or maybe even just a group to your mind and and you look at whatever that is for you, you can pretty quickly see I am not introducing the presence of Christ in this situation. And would you just now ask Christ to forgive you of that? To soften your heart? To begin to see those relationships through his, his eyes, his mind? Jesus, would you just in these moments begin to transform us, change our minds, help us to stop pretending to being superficial, and would you start to press deeply into our hearts and into our lives and into our practice, truly loving the way that you have loved us.